Thank you, worship team, for leading us. One of the perils of standing in the front row is that if everybody sits down behind you, you can't tell. So that's why Jason was wondering if I was going to come up. I was just standing. We all needed a rest. That's good. And uh, as I said in the introduction, or in the uh, welcome and announcements this morning, for us as Christians, uh, rest is not just about being overclocked and then going and hiding away. That's why uh, kids and young people, when summer looks so good at the end of the year, right? You've been overworked, uh, you've done all your exams, and then you get to summer and you just think, if only summer could last forever. I just want to do nothing forever, right? Then by the time school comes back around, you're ready for it. You're tired of doing nothing forever, uh, and you're ready for school again. In the same way, the paradise that God has for us is not about doing nothing forever. The paradise that God has for us is about connection, connection with God, connection with the family of God, with those that we love and those that God loves. And so this morning, as we continue our series, uh, All In, we're looking at God's all-in love for us. We're looking at Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And I say all this because I'm recognizing that I think Not many enough of us, not enough of us have experienced the way of Jesus as a model for us to follow or a way of living that transforms every aspect of our lives. And so we're going to hear that word paradise uh, several times this morning. That's the title of this morning's sermon. And we're looking at Jesus' promise for paradise of the kingdom of God to come today and eternally. And so as we do that, I just want to invite you and encourage you again to consider an operating definition of paradise that really is about rest, that's about connection with God, connection with God's people, and with those we love. So let's read about paradise. We're going to read uh, actually from the last chapters of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, or the last verses, when Jesus is taken to the cross. So as Jesus was taken to the cross, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, They crucified him there, along with the two criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they, the soldiers, divided up his clothes by casting lots. Then the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal said to him, rebuked him, Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are being punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserved. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response, our focus this morning, truly I tell you, or amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So far the reading of God's word. Now, at the end of last week's sermon, I sent you off with a blessing, and the song we sang at the end of the sermon was, and all the people said, amen. 
You remember what I said about that word, amen? It's like an emphatic or an exclamation mark. It means, so be it. And at the end of our text this morning, the criminal asks Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to the criminal on the cross, amen, so be it, I will. Today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm coming into my kingdom today, and you will be with me in paradise. In my preparation for this week, for this sermon, two questions or thoughts came to mind. First, how was this criminal saved? And second, what does it mean for us that Jesus' kingdom came at his crucifixion? After another church shooting in the United States the last week or two, and another white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, I was thinking this week about a shooting in 2016 when a 21-year-old white supremacist went to a Bible study at a black church in Southern, or in, uh, Southern Carolina. The city was Charleston. It was the same city where the first shots of the U.S. Civil War were fired. And this young man killed nine people, nine black people, part of the church. Months later, he wrote this in his diary. He said, I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. He laughed during an FBI interview, saying, I'm guilty. We all know I'm guilty. When Dylan Roof was sentenced to the death penalty in South Carolina, some of the members of that Methodist church spoke out against the death penalty. Even though it was their family and friends, their loved ones who were killed, they said that life in prison was enough. And then the mother of Twanza Sanders, Felicia Sanders, one of the nine victims who was killed, her mother, Felicia, went on the record at a news story and said, I forgive you, the man who killed her daughter. You can see Tyrone and Felicia Sanders at their daughter's funeral. Now, I want you to imagine, you don't have to, there's a picture behind me, but I want you to imagine the electric chair in South Carolina. Someone sentenced to death can be electrocuted or can receive lethal injection in South Carolina, and it's the same chair. It's this chair. And I want to just pause here for a moment because we talk about the cross a lot. And I think in many ways, the cross has lost its offensiveness to us. For all intents and purposes, the, the, elect, or the electrical chair is a more humane way of killing someone than the cross. The cross was torture for hours, sometimes even days. And yet when we see the electric chair, we are rightly revolted and offended. Now imagine that there are three chairs next to each other. Three people to be executed on the same day. Jesus in the middle chair and two criminals, two murderers beside him. One of them mocks him. One of them never changes his tone until he is put to death. 
But the other turns to Jesus and says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds and says, I will. That today, you will be with me in paradise. When we see evil, we are tempted to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. But God's grace is not given more to rich people or more to those well-established in society. Scripture tells us that God's grace is given in equal measure to all who turn to him. There's so much in our society that is defined by your position, your job, your, your criminal history, your place in the community, what people think of you or whether they will listen to you. But salvation is not positional. It's not about the place that we hold. Salvation is directional. It's about the person we turn to. When we read this text, what we see is that God wants repentant criminals in his kingdom, even when we don't want them in our society. You see, our salvation is not about what we do. It's about who we turn to. This is why God's grace is so offensive to us. Why the idea of someone on the electric chair being forgiven and experiencing paradise feels so wrong to us. The salvation of a criminal just moments before his death is offensive because every human part of us protests that no, we must contribute something to our salvation. How can he be allowed in? He's done nothing right. He hasn't tithed. He hasn't volunteered. He hasn't served. And look at all that he's done wrong. This man, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus, is saved only by grace. Only by God's all-in love. But that's not the end of the story. You see, the Apostle Paul teaches his spiritual son, Timothy, the importance of that, that each of us would see ourselves as the same as the criminal on the cross. This is what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, Paul goes on to say that he thinks that he is the worst, but in this, par- or in this paragraph, in this verse, what he's not saying is that he's the worst. What Paul is saying is that this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, this is a saying that everyone should say. This is how we each and all should see ourselves. That God's grace or was given to me that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is how Paul teaches Timothy, we each and all should view ourselves. And then he continues to demonstrate that attitude personally to Timothy. He says, for this reason, I was shown mercy, that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might might display his unlimited patience as, as an example for all those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. As that verse stays up on the screen behind me, just imagine for a moment 
how much easier life in the church would be. How much we would be saved from the pride that pollutes our minds, ourselves, our community. If all of us followed Paul's exhortation to see ourselves as the worst of sinners. To be overwhelmed individually by God's grace for me. Before I even go into a difficult conversation. Before I even expect another person to move or to respond. Brothers and sisters, when we imagine the Jesus that we are following, and as Christians we say that we are followers of Jesus. So when we imagine the Jesus that we are following, is it Jesus on a grassy hill? Is it Jesus on, uh, on a boat just out from shore with all the crowds pushing in to hear him? Maybe it's Jesus in a house surrounded by his disciples with People eager to listen in at the windows and at the door. We do not very often imagine that we are following Jesus as he is crucified and as we are crucified alongside him. If we were to pursue that picture, if that was our operating picture of what it meant to follow Jesus, that we would be at the cross as he was being crucified. Could any of us say anything different than the second criminal? We are being punished justly. We are getting what our sins deserve. Again, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we always carry around the, in our bodies the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What does Paul mean? Well, he means that followers of Jesus follow Jesus all the way to the cross. That we don't stand idly by watching Jesus and sad. That we're not passive observers. We are the same as the criminals on the cross. And brothers and sisters and friends, that Christ who whose death covered the shame of the criminal on the cross, has given us his death to carry around. And as we carry around the death of Christ with us, we, you need to know, we need to know, that Christ is not surprised by the marks that we have received from this world. <clears throat> Christ is not turned away or repulsed by the depth of our shame and our brokenness. Christ sees us at our worst and knows that like the criminal, we are getting what our deeds deserve. And then he looks to us when we respond in faith to him and ask him to remember us. And he says, truly you too can be with me today in paradise. Opening up and bearing to those we love, to our world, sharing the marks of living in a broken world, our weakness, our weariness, our anxiety, even our own sin. These things may be the only signals that our families and friends, that our coworkers and neighbors, our marks of sin, 
hour marks of anxiety and weariness, those may be the only signal that God welcomes these parts of us too. Those things that weigh us down, our own personal sins, the grief and pain of this world, they may be the only signal to our anxious and weary world that God welcomes those parts of us and those parts of them in his kingdom. That in fact, we can bear the marks of living in a broken world and have our shame covered by Jesus. That's the glorious scandal of the gospel. Like the criminal, we need just one thing, to be all in to Jesus. That in fact, we're never too late, never too bad, never too undeserving, never too ugly. With this person who is defined by his crime, all we know about him, all anybody who knew about him as they walked by, was that he was a criminal. With this person, Jesus remained until the end. Not the Jesus who was by the Sea of Galilee teaching the crowds, but the Jesus who was in excruciating pain himself. Even in Jesus' weakness and pain, even in Jesus, the fullness of Jesus' suffering, he was right there with that man until the end. Even as that man was suffering the consequences of his sinful life, Jesus was there. And he remains with us as well. See, the Jesus we follow is a Jesus who willingly suffered. And now, he's present also with all those who suffer. But just like at the cross, when two criminals respond differently, so also our, our response to Jesus matters. One criminal looks at Jesus in his suffering and goes all in. He trusts and hopes in God because somehow he sees God even in the pierced and suffering body of Jesus. One criminal goes all in. The other one jeers. By the cross, some people, the women, stand and wait and watch and witness their Lord. The soldiers are there too. But they mock him. They look to personally profit off his clothes. Today as well, Jesus remains here. He remains all in for his people. Some of us long for his kingdom to come. Some of us long to follow him and to see him. Others of us still joke. We wait. We distrust We even jeer. Jesus remains. These two groups remain. They find themselves in exactly the same situation. Yet only one group of people has hope and peace. Only one group of people can really have rest. Not just rest that's running away from your busyness and your exhaustion, but rest that is deep and meaningful connection. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that second question I started with, that the kingdom of God has come, Jesus says. He said to the criminal on the cross that his kingdom has come today, 
at his crucifixion. Which means that the kingdom of God continues to be here with us today, here and now. That we do not have only some far off heaven to look forward to. We have life with Jesus and with Jesus' family now, today. Consider just one more time this morning the excruciating pain of the cross. Romans were excellent torturers. The way someone is crucified, they're, they're made to be slumped over. And every time they need to take a breath, they need to push up on their legs to take a breath, which makes them feel the pain in their feet. Every breath was pain. Yet even when this criminal was suffering greatly, he still asked Jesus to remember him. Which is to say that in any situation, we can see and know the true God who is with us, even in great pain. The possibility of seeing and knowing God, of being with him in paradise, has always seemed too good to be true to God's people. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus tries to calm his disciples' fear and worry and anxiety in John chapter 14, where he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that, if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go, Jesus continues, then I will also come back to take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know where I'm going. Maybe you remember how this story continues. Thomas immediately reacts to Jesus, says, Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says the words that I've referenced in every sermon in this series. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If the first half of this sermon was about God's grace as offensive, because it's so overwhelming. Then in this last part, these last few minutes, I want you to see that God's grace is marvelous because it's so immediate and expansive. Jesus says to his disciples, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Or would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now, if you listen to last week's sermon, you should have been triggered by those words, my father's house. Because last week I made a big deal of saying that in Jesus' day, the word for house is oikos, not the yogurt that we all have in our houses. It's the building was called that oikos. But not just the building, also the people who lived there, the family, the household who lived there. So what does Jesus mean when he says that his father's house has many rooms? Well, in Jesus' day, the house was not a single family home where each kid had their own bedroom. It was a multi-family home where grandma and grandpa lived in one room, where the son and his wife and their kids lived in another room, and the daughter and, and her family lived in another room. Jesus' picture of paradise is not that each kid gets their own room. It's not that we have many rooms and each of you can find a place where, where there'll be a, a PlayStation waiting for you. When Jesus says his father's house has many rooms, he's giving us a picture that there are many different families within the larger household of God. We all know 
and understand and experience in our own lives that different families have different ways of being. Just like different cultural groups have different ways of being. Jesus is saying that in, in his paradise, there is room for everyone who turns to him. That we don't all need to be one way. We can each be who we are as we turn to Jesus. A missiologist, Miriam Adene, says it this way. She says, our worship, and by extent, our congregational life, but our worship must be multicultural. Not simply because our society is multicultural, but because the future from which God is calling us is multicultural. We ought to be multicultural, not just so that those from other cultures may feel at home among us, but so also that we may feel at home in God's future. If we want to feel at home in God's future, we need to build multicultural worship and a multicultural church today. The paradise that Jesus has for us is not a house that's built with more money. It's not the, the comforts of society all laid out for us and we never have to work another day. The paradise that Jesus has built for us is an expansive household and a family with more of himself, more of Jesus, with more of the love of God, and with more rooms than we could ever imagine where everyone who turns to Jesus can be who they are. With our physical lives, we can only see an earthly paradise built with money, looking good, sounding perfect, great acoustics. But with spiritual eyes, we can see that paradise is about more of Jesus. About people coming into this building, coming into our homes, coming into our lives and saying, I can't explain it, but somehow I feel the presence of God here. Do we want this paradise congregation? Do we want that all-in vision of the future are we willing even to work to prepare ourselves to experience God's heaven, God's paradise in the present? As we close, I want to quote or, or consider just for a moment the other criminal next to the cross on Jesus, the one that we've ignored so far. He says to Jesus, save yourself and us. As we close, I just want to pause for a moment and reflect, invite you to reflect with me that Jesus cannot do both. We've talked about this all in love of Jesus saving us, but it cost him his life. Jesus cannot do both. He cannot both save others in obedience to his Father and save himself. We also cannot do both. We cannot go all in and also save parts of us for ourselves and only ourselves. Scripture says you cannot love both God and money. God doesn't say you must not serve both God and money. God doesn't say you do not serve, you shall not serve both God and money. He doesn't command us. He says you can't. That's actually impossible. When we say we, I'm trying to have it both ways, or when we hedge our bets, actually we're going the wrong way. 
We all have a picture of the paradise that we're longing for, working for, turning toward. Some of us want to see it happen now. And we feel like if only we could change society and force structural change, then we might have it. Others of us can't wait for Jesus to come back, for our sins to be washed away, and for heaven to come to earth. But in both cases, are we happy to wait for change to come to us? To wait for society or to try and force others to change? Or to expect that Jesus will do all the changing? See, brothers and sisters, Jesus wants to transform you today and me. He wants us to taste paradise with him in his kingdom now. Jesus doesn't want you to leave this place the same as when you entered it. This is the urgency of the gospel. And so as we close this morning, I want to close from a sermon, with the closing words of a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. And I've, just a disclaimer, I've updated the language a bit because he preached this sermon over 100 years ago and English has changed. This is how he closes. He says, do you wish to leave this world in the darkness of a desponding deathbed and enter heaven as a shipwrecked sailor who climbs the rocks of his native country? If that's what you want, then be worldly. Be mixed up with materialism. Refuse to bear Christ's shame and reproach in the world. But would you have a heaven below as well as a heaven above? Would you have heaven now? Then would you comprehend with all the saints what are the heights and the depths and know the love of Christ that passes understanding? Would you receive an abundant entrance into the joy of your Lord? Then come out from among them. Be separate. For the sake of your own comfort and the sake of your own growth in grace, if you are a Christian, be a Christian. Be a marked and distinct one. End quote. In other words, go all in. Experience heaven later and heaven now. Let's pray. Father God, we long to experience not just paradise that is far and future, but the paradise that is with us. Lord, help us to know the peace that passes understanding. Help us to know the joy of connection with you, with your people, with those we love, the interconnected relationships that we are made for. Lord, we thank you that we do not have to pursue paradise on our own, with our own map, or in our own strength. But we thank you, Lord, that Jesus you have shown us the way. You showed us your overwhelming love to the criminal on the cross. Just as you show your overwhelming love to all of us. Preparing for each of us a room in your father's house. Where we are welcome. All of us. And, all, and every part of us. As we turn to you. But thank you, Lord, most of all, not just that you have shown the way but that you are the way and that you are with us. In Jesus' precious name, Lord, we pray and we thank you. Amen.